Sarah, and this is Custodians. I've been pretty curious for a while as to what would happen if we remembered that we are actually custodians of this earth and not just consumers. See, wouldn't that just shift things a little bit? Because custodians are caretakers and they're responsible for protecting something. But firstly, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians, the Palawa people, the original custodians of the land where I've recorded this podcast. And I'd like to pay my deepest respect to elders past, present and emerging. I would also like to take a moment to acknowledge our current context because we're living at a time when the human species is having an unprecedented impact on the planet. The human population is now over 7.6 billion people and growing, with over half now living in cities. Around the world, we're beginning to see the dramatic consequences of human-induced climate change and resource scarcity. We're living through Earth's sixth great extinction event, witnessing a dramatic loss of diversity of both other species and human cultures, Inequality is growing, with 80 of the wealthiest people now controlling more than the poorest 3 billion people. So what do we do with all of this? To be honest, I don't really know yet. But two years ago, I got a call from Triple J. You get tickets in any society. I never said that I thought it would be bad. Are you high now? Yeah. Hey, Tom Tilly with you for Hack. Do you want to change the world? Well, today on Hack, we'll look at what's changed in 2017 and what change you want to see in the future. It was the end of the same year that Trump had been elected and Brexit had happened. And they were looking to do a radio segment to wrap up the year, but also insert some hopeful shit that was also happening in the world. Oh yeah, move over, old people. Young people are tanking over. Joe Lauder reporting now. So despite feeling completely overwhelmed and unworthy, I chucked on some clothes and rocked up to the ABC headquarters. And to make this situation even more intimidating, I was joined by Bob Brown, an environmental hero of mine. All right, well, one of Australia's most successful activists for change is Bob Brown. Uh, He started with the environmental protest movement and then founded Australia's most uh, successful protest party, the Australian Greens. Um, Let's find out what he thinks about the big protest movements of our time. Bob Brown, thanks for joining us. G'day, Tom. The big one, of course, is saving the planetary environment upon which we all depend, the biosphere. And global warming is uh, arguably the biggest threat to that, that and acidification of the ocean coming out of burning fossil fuels. Don't get depressed, get active. And if you are getting depressed, it's because you're burdened with intelligence. And (laughs) as a philosopher said, Bertrand Russell said a long, long time ago, the trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of self-doubt. Well, the intelligent folk have got to get over it and get active. Peaceful protest is part of the democracy which our constitution upholds. Things are stirring. Mm. Uh, I'm very excited about this and I see lots of bright-eyed young people. As I get older, moving towards the end of the footway of life, I look (laughs) back and see these bright-eyed young women and men stepping onto that footway and, you know, it fills me with optimism. Well, Bob, uh, I've actually got one. Our hands. I've got one right in the studio right now. I've got a, a young female activist who started up um, her own movement, and I've got to actually give you a language warning before I introduce this movement. Um, it's called um, Fuck Giving. <laughs> um, Sarah Rickards, thank you for joining us. Tell us what this movement's all about. It's about showing and not telling. Um, it's about inspiring people to operate from a place of why and not what and helping people to find their purpose and figure out what they give a fuck about um, and to also find their tribe so that everybody can make change. A few weeks later, I actually ended up in Tasmania 
Bob Brown's stomping ground, and a friend of mine that I was visiting convinced me to hit up Bob for a coffee. Expecting maybe a 10-minute chat, if that, two hours later we left his office with our hearts completely cracked open by his humbleness and also wisdom. We got real deep with Bob and asked him how he's had the resilience to get, dedicate his life to the future to make it more awesome for all of us. How do you practice like self-care and fill your own cup and like nourish yourself and not get caught up in, you know? That oh, kind take of photographs. Uh, <laughs> and having a good companion mm. makes things so much better. Mm -hmm. you know? He's, he's um, not over-demonstrative, Mm. But he, you know, just, uh, you know, uh, we, we just share life together and it's, it's uh, a terrific thing and he has me up weeding his paddock and helping get the sheep in and doing this and doing that. And, but we plan travels together and it's just a, that's a very fortunate thing, being at this end of life and seeing, you know, um, that you do have to look after yourself. Mm. Digging a little deeper around like companionship, um, and you saying that that's important. Um, I know as like someone that works in this space, it's like it's been really interesting to like navigate those types of relationships because you can end up in relationships with people that really, that care a lot about this stuff as well. And you like there's no detachment or boundary and like uh, turning off. Yeah. Do you find that that's something that like you both really care about the same things, or do you find that it's like having enough difference is also? No, we care about, about the same things, but we do our own thing. We, we, we share a common philosophy, I guess, but it, uh, encourage each other to do our own things. I think you probably it would be more difficult if you were falling over each other wanting to do the same thing, mm. same project, have, have your own projects mm. and, uh, mm. and plan good times out. That's important. He's a more social gadabout than me and has people around for drinks more often than me and... Uh, but I, it's always enjoyable when mm -hmm. it happens. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. but you see, uh, not everybody's got a, a partner no, <coughs> in life. Some people find their companionship in music, mm -hmm. uh, and all the better if you're a performer, even if you only do it at home or you do compose a little bit. Mm -hmm. Others find it in writing and poetry. Mm -hmm. uh, others find it mm -hmm. in being able to be in a community organisation. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have to be somebody, although that's the jackpot. Um, I know that like, you're working on all of these amazing things. What do you need help with? Well, the Tarkon campaign. Yeah. Um, because it's not too well recognised as the biggest... Do you know, I hadn't heard of it. Yeah. Until, yeah. yeah. Um, and and yeah. people have trouble pronouncing it and, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's the biggest temperate rainforest in Australia. Yeah. And and it's also one of the richest Aboriginal heritage sites. There's hut sites. Mm. There were three-roomed huts there in, in um, written historical times. And, and we're campaigning for two things. One, to protect it from mining and logging and off-road vehicles. Mm -hmm. And the second is to return it to the Aboriginal people. And mm -hmm. so we're working with the Tasmanian Aboriginal community to get that double outcome. And neither of those things is... Totally popular. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think that is? Oh, because people are prejudiced. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, a against, uh, in favour of mining and logging, mm -hmm. and B against uh, Aboriginal mm -hmm. Australians. Mm -hmm. And I heard that you're taking a hundred artists um, down to the Tarkine to to paint and celebrate. Tarkine in motion. Yeah. And that includes songwriters. Mm -hmm. uh, 
tapestry makers. Any kind of art. Any kind of poets, mm -hmm. the whole gamut, as well as the photographers and the painters. And, uh, and, and at the other end of the year, we have science uh, bioblitz, so a hundred scientists and young people who are studying science going out there and finding what they can and discovering the ecosystem and looking for rare and endangered species. So I'm it, a scientist by training, so my brain's just like exploding uh, now, like, take me, at the end of our conversation, Bob actually invited us to join him and over a hundred artists in the Tarkine Forest, preferably known by the Palawa people as Takaina. Takaina is Australia's largest temperate rainforest, an absolute galaxy of rare and endangered wildlife and some of the richest Aboriginal heritage in the hemisphere. It has the cleanest air in the world as measured by the nearby UN monitoring station. Its habitat's over 50 threatened species. And there's just this overwhelming lushness. It's full of leatherwood, celery top pine, huon pine and myrtles. Some of these trees grow over 80 metres tall and they're hundreds of years old. Just the sheer size of the Tarkine forest makes it perhaps one of the richest carbon sinks in Australia, at least on land anyway, holding over 100 million tonnes of carbon, making it a highly valuable asset in today's world where we're currently facing a climate emergency. Except we're currently logging it and turning it into wood chips and paper pulp. And to me, that just seems pretty ridiculous. Like, shouldn't we be keeping all of this carbon in the ground and preserving wild places as opposed to turning it into such low value product? So I guess for me, it begs the question, what do we actually do to protect this beautiful wild place? Well, we take people there, we let people know about it, but we also have to hit up our politicians and ask them what they're doing to save the Tarkine because we need it to be a World Heritage listed site. I caught up with one of the legends that started a company called Tarkine Trails. He spent more nights in the Tarkine than probably anybody on the planet right now and he shared some insights about what's been happening in the Tarkine and some of his experiences because having only been there just once it completely transformed me um, but what it's done to him and allowed him to be able to walk the wild into the world is absolutely phenomenal. So here's Darvis. So for the everyday Joe Blow who doesn't know anything about what this Tarkine thing is, <laughs> the Tarkine is broadly recognised as the largest single tract of cool temperate rainforest in the southern hemisphere. It's a piece of land up in the northwest corner of, a big piece of land in the northwest corner of Tasmania. Um, uh, the, the size of the landscape is about 450,000 hectares, um, about 200,000 hectares of which is really uh, ancient, pristine forest um, and an extraordinary uh, coastline. Um, the Pyman River uh, forming the southern boundary of the landscape, the Arthur River to the north, uh, and the coastline is extremely rich and significant in terms of its Aboriginal archaeological heritage um, some, some 400 internationally recognised significant sites. But the cornerstone important aspect of the, the heart of the Tarkine from a rainforest point of view is uh, an, an area called the Savage River Rainforest. So that's the heart of the Tarkine, uh, effectively 30 kilometres long by 10 kilometres wide. On a basalt plateau is ancient myrtle rainforests devoid of eucalyptus canopy. It's evolved over that period of time to protect itself from fire which means that it's pure rainforest and it's like a Zen Japanese garden. Most folk haven't accessed that part of the Tarkine, but it's there and it's 
um, extremely stunning. The Tarkines are also recognised for the tallest flowering trees on the planet, some of uh, eucalyptus, a, whole, a range of eucalyptus species, but mostly obliqua, um, so 80 metre tall eucalyptus canopy um, in part. So on the fringes of that rainforest, the, uh, the eucalyptus canopy dominates the rainforest understory, but in the heart, the myrtle rainforest is king, 50 metres tall, absolutely spectacular, an emerald wonderland. <laughs> My connection to the Tarkine. So, late 90s, myself and my mate Howie, I grew up with Howie, he's my best buddy. The, the road to nowhere blockade was getting pushed through in the mid 90s and we were keeping our eye on it. We were, we were really keen on like bushwalking and we spent a lot of time bushwalking together around Freycinet and yeah, and we had our eye on the road to nowhere blockade as youngsters and then once we got our license we um, we head up, headed up to the Tarkine and, and spent a week or so mm -hmm. in and around the South Arthur Forest Drive and the road to nowhere, the Western Explorer. So just sort of sussing the landscape and getting a sense of it. And yeah, like many people, I think um, the, first, the first meeting of an ancient temperate rainforest and a, an incredibly wild coastline, like we were ba basically both floored by the experience. It was an extremely transformational experience for both of us and I guess you could kind of say it was like a wild rite of passage we were smashed by the weather I remember sitting out at Cooter Rocks setting up a camp and it was just insanely insanely windy and full-on and and then when we, we spent a few nights at Milkshake Hills as well which is a little forest reserve along the South Arthur Forest Drive and and it just utterly got inside our bones and how he's just a really present still kind of guy and we both love just hanging out around campfire and eating food and sipping tea and coffee and we did that for days as it pissed down with rain and just completely fell head, of, head over heels and love with the landscape yeah and so then from that point on you know in the late 90s i met a man by the name of rob fairley and um, and he put a proposal forward to me. We were talking about the Tarkine, and he said, "Look, I'm interested in starting a tourism business in the Tarkine." And um, and it just fitted like a glove. As soon as he mentioned Tarkine, my ears pricked up, and I was like, he he'd moved down from Brisbane, and um, had that kind of had just come out of a business degree, um, an environmental science degree. So really pioneering dude. And I was like, wow, this guy's got mojo. I like this guy. Um, and I was ready to do something with my life. I'd worked for Parks and Wildlife and I'd studied ecology and I'd done a whole bunch of stuff. And I was really ready to, to move on and take ownership of my life. And so he proposed what was then called Tiger Trails um, in honour of the, the, the guys that were blockading over that, that course of time, the Western Explorer Road, uh, the road to nowhere. And that's how... Tarkine, it eventually merged into Tarkine trails, but the general concept was, you know, how do we, um, how do we bypass the polarization in the state? Mm -hmm. That was my personal passion. Because, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by the polarization? Well, the polarized, like when you grow up in Tasmania, the, the reality of the situation is that people are categorized into stereotypes. Mm. You're either pro-industry, like and whether you're called a redneck or whatever, um, or you're a, you're a greenie. 
Mm. So what does pro-industry mean? Logging? Yeah, mining? so resource extraction industry. You're, either, you're driving trucks to the mining companies or you're, you're a logging contractor. Um, you know, so sort of working class, not so interested in conservation. But if you're interested in conservation, you're thrown into the stereotype of green. And that's because the, the battles have raged for, you know, since you know, 1920s when the road was pushed up to the top of Mount Wellington. There was a, a major environmental campaign going on to try to stop it. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been an extremely polarised culture when it comes to natural resource management, the, the division between people who want to conserve um, for, for the sake of the landscape and the sake of wilderness values or wild values and um, people who want to, you know, extract resources from landscape. And so having grown up here, um, my personal passion was to be able to bypass that polarisation and create a, an alternative economy. You know, I recognised that that was the unique thing that we were doing. We weren't, we weren't trying to argue for the wild for its own inherent wild values, because that argument in my mind is pretty hard to argue for now, like post the Franklin campaign, which was a huge campaign in the early 80s. Um, it kind of ran out of steam, I reckon. And so we wanted to try a new approach. And so for the first time ever, a tourism operator opened up an exclusive license arrangement with Forestry Tasmania to be able to navigate a six day walk through um, uh, you know, basically state forest. So an area that's completely unprotected because only 5% of the landscape in the Tarkine is protected. So the goal was to get, get into the landscape and deliberately place infrastructure into unpro you know, unprotected um, areas mm -hmm. and use that as an economic leverage and argument for conservation. So pragmatism, basically. Mm -hmm. And what do you think the balance is between keeping something wild and turning something into a tourist hotspot? Like, what happens when too many people find out about it and want to go? I think the, de the balance, in, in my mind, is really clearly um, really succinct management of an area. And I think, you know, the Overland Track for me is not a wild place, relatively speaking. I'm quite spoilt because all of my guiding over 20 years, I've guided the Overland Track maybe two or, th two or three times. And I love it, and it's a stunning landscape. It's not about the landscape, it's about the amount of people in it, and it feels like a tourism highway to me. And so when the, in the Tarkan, we've got this incredible opportunity, given that the infrastructure, the, the land tenure isn't secure yet, in order to be able to justify the government coming in and, and placing a whole bunch of public infrastructure in there, we've got this incredible uh, opportunity to be able to like, create booking systems that really manage that, the wild experience. You know, so in, ta in the Tasmanian context, the, the kind of pro-industry joke is that the only wilderness is between a greenie's ears. <laughs> and the irony of it is that there's, there's a whole bunch of truth to that, mm -hmm. you know, because wilderness is conceptual. Mm -hmm. It's subjective to the person, um, not the place so much. You know, if it, you've got a big wild zone, then basically it's a wild place. Um, but for me, it's having been spoilt and guiding, you know, lots and lots and lots of years guiding in the Tarkine, then, and really never coming across anybody other than that small group dynamic that we embark with, it creates an, extra, an extraordinary experience of safety, of like a sense of community, um, when we're not continually being socially interrupted by other people, and it enables that sense of sort of sovereign relationship with the wild to be quite pure 
where people are departing from the hearth, going out into the landscape and then coming back um, without that social interruption, I think is extremely rare in the world. Tell me more about that. So we're bombarded with, you know, phone notifications and jobs that we have to do and just life and, you know, this narrative of being human. We're so full. So tell me more about space and why space is important and how wild places provide that space. I mean, like at the most existential level, um, for me, we, we, there is no distinction between me and a wild place. Mm-hmm. I'm born of the same stardust. And I think for what happens, um, not only for me, but for anyone that ventures into a wild landscape, with a, especially with a reflective mindset, um, there's, there's some level of realisation of my own profound interconnectedness with life. Mm-hmm. And notifications of phones and all of the distractions of day to day, I guess keep for me the, the way I look at it is it, it keeps us in a really narrow sense of identity. You know, when I come into a wild landscape, it, it by default turns my senses on, and my senses are my connect my are my tools to be able to connect with things outside of me. But my senses are so shut down in day to day world, and I think. You know, f- and why do they shut down? Well, because I think we're bombarded, and mm-hmm. I think it's a pretty monoculture life. Mm-hmm. You know, nine to five, grind, go to work, earn, co- earn coin, come home, turn on Netflix. You know, it's almost it's it's quite robotic, um, and I think anyone would recognise that. Like, you know, we we ultimately become human doings, not so much human beings. Mm-hmm. And whereas the the wild is a training ground for being, you know, and I think that's I'm I'm really interested in demystifying that. Because I don't think as I think as long as we leave um, things that are, are fundamentally for someone who's spent a vast amount of time in the Tarkin in the wild, um, it's not it's not um, it's actually really pragmatic. You, as a guide, you begin to understand exactly what's going on. My senses turn on, oxygen pumping through my blood. There's a whole bunch of physical processes that then trigger a whole bunch of emotional processes. My empathy empathy is then on. I'm then connected with the landscape. My curiosity has me understand the principles that are underpinning things. Um, and then, therefore, my, my identity broadens out and to, to the point where there's a sense of internal spaciousness. You know? And I think that's common like, from, with all the years that I've ever guided. Like the, the one thing that happens, irrespective of age, backgrounds, religious belief, is people being completely disarmed by place emotionally you know and and therefore i think you know ultimately what a wild place does in my experience is um trigger a sense of profound life perspective Mm -hmm. and the way that i articulate that is that it creates a sense of inner spaciousness to match the external spaciousness you know even as we're sitting here at this gorgeous little in this gorgeous little space looking out across the cove um you know the vast vista of clouds is ultimately like a trigger. Eckhart Tolle refers to this. He's like the vast universe is a trigger for the vast space inside you. You know, and I think that vast space inside me is where, um, I think is where most of the, the upside to humanity is because ultimately we're creating from our identity. So if we're creating from like a monoculture identity, like a really singular, single-tracked, notifications, phones, busy, 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 busy brain, then we're going to create 
stuff that matches that identity. Mm-hmm. But I want to create freaking Rivendell. <laughs> I don't know about you, but like when I read Lord of the Rings the first time, I was like, man, that's where I want to live. I want to live in stunning beauty. Do you think we need to go into wild places to understand the impact that our environment has on us? Do you think that, you know, being primarily in cities, the vast majority of our population lives in cities in these somewhat sterile environments and it's numbing? Yeah, the, the quick answer is yes. Mm. Yeah. Tell me more about that. <laughs> well, I think... Or do you not embody that because you don't live in a city? But, well, I don't live in a city because I know what it's like to live in a city. Mm. I don't want to live in a city um, because it just doesn't meet my own needs for a sense of connection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's... I, I can't imagine how one gets that ex- the experience of profound sense of interconnectedness with life without direct experience with for me a wild place is just a a brilliant showcase of what the universe does when you don't screw with it Mm -hmm. it's like a pure reflection of universal wisdom and intelligence and balance and so therefore it's just an extraordinary resource for transformation and well-being and without being exposed you know like my kind of thing is like so many of the world's guru figures and messiahs have ultimately gone into wild landscape and had transcendental experiences and i don't see why people bow down to the messiahs and i respect that they do but i'm like just go straight to the landscape straight to the source so i feel like um there are definitely ways and tools and practices and you know contemporary ways of connecting for example people in cities can do deep ecology training mm-hmm which enables them to sort of conceptually connect with the landscape and the universe. We all have a sense of what the wild is. Um, even if it's just from a David Attenborough film, <laughs> you know. Yes, I definitely think it's, I think it, the, the most powerful way is direct contact with the source. And so there's all of these places in the world and there's only some places that are wild. And what percentage of wild do you think is left in the world? Like we can never really know, but as a ballpark... Like, how rare is something like the Tarkine as a wild place, just to put it into perspective? Extremely. Mm. Yeah. Like, I've travelled the world looking... I travelled all through Europe looking for wild places. And I remember coming to a place in Slovenia, and it was touted as being the jewel in the crown of um, ancient forests outside of Russia, because Russia's got some vast ancient forests left. And I was so excited, and, and, and the name of the place was Kajeski Rog, and I'd researched it, so I travelled to Slovenia looking for this place. And not only was it near impossible to find, but when I found it, I found it randomly through coming across a little gazebo in the middle of a paddock, gazebo. like a little um, kind of hut. And I was like, What's, is, that, is that hut got anything to do with this place? And then inside the hut, it was like a little tourism, it was like from the 70s or something, a little tourism, like a hexagonal space with um, tourism information and interpretation. And it identified that there were six reserves totaling 240 hectares. Wow. And that was the jewel in the crown outside of Russia. It's at least what they mm. touted as being that. Mm. Now, you know, I, I think I've sub, since then I've come across people from Romania and different places saying, no, we've got better forests than that there. So I, I'm not speaking from experience of having, you know, comprehensively scanned the world. And I'm sure there are pockets, but... I, I think the reality of the situation is that European forests outside of Russia, because Russia is vast, are so massive, have been inhabited for such a length of time. 
that the actual um, the reality of uh, of them being um, having vast tracts of pristine um, forest is really small. Um, so I think yeah, like, I mean the, the short answer is maybe you know maybe five percent of the world maintains some level of you know genuine, authentic, pure wildness that's accessible. What do you think will happen if we don't have any wildness left? I think ultimately the the fate of humanity is that we be we become, you know, I mean it's kind of frightening, but I I kind of look at the matrix as a little bit of a, a a telltale sign of like, you know, ultimately that sense of artificial intelligence and being plugged into a a network is already happening. We already are kind of like cyborgs, you know. We've got these phones with us twenty four seven. It's sitting here and recording us now. Um, it's now listening to us, you know, the Facebook settings are listening to us when we're talking and most people don't even know that. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit like George Orwell's, you know, 1984 or mm-hmm. Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a, it's a frightening, um, I, I think, a frightening possibility that we end up becoming subs- subservient to artificial intelligence and ultimately we become, our, our identities become really dumbed down and narrowed down to these um, kind of machines at the end of these little mini pokey machines <laughs> sending notifications at us. And I think it, it runs the risk of like a, you know, of, of centralization of government, which I hate the idea of centralization of government with a passion because it takes away our sovereignty. Um, so I guess where I see where I see the planet going is more and more toward this monoculture identity of identification with material stuff and getting quick dopamine hits through notifications and pretending that we've got 10,000 friends in social media space. And most of that stuff's a complete delusion, you know. um, Do you think we crave that because we're so disconnected from nature, forgetting that we are nature and not having access to wild places, and so it's us searching for connection 100 percent. if we don't if we don't have that if we haven't had the experience of wild time and wild space how do we know any different and the more disconnected we become as a culture where kids are now sitting i mean it, literally in, in a matter of 10 years um you know we can now go to restaurants and watch as parents stick their children in front of ipads um so that they can maintain enough attention to sit at a restaurant and have dinner and it's common i see it constantly um, yeah, so I feel like in the absence of rite of passage from a young age to engage in the natural world, then we don't even know what we're missing. You're super connected to the Tarkine and know all about it, but a lot of I hadn't heard about the Tarkine a year and a half ago. So there's the Tarkine, some people call it the Takaina. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't, I don't pronounce it like that simply because, like, for years and years I've been pronouncing it like if I was to pronounce the the Aboriginal version where I came across that the average the, the articulation of um, Takinia mm-hmm. was through Takinia. Or, yeah it was through um, Augustus Robinson's um, friendly mission journal and so when he interviewed the um, the people of the west coast it's <laughs> nice when he interviewed the people of the west coast there were three three bands of people one on the Pyman River, um, and they were called the, the Petadenic, and then the Takinia were around Sandy Cape, and the Manigan 
were around Arthur River, and that's kind of like the southern and northern boundaries of the Tarkaina, the Paiman River on the south, and the Arthur River to the north. And so when he came across to Takania, they they referred to um, Takain when when it was broken down. He um, whatever the you know he used dot points. It was T A R dot K I dot N W E R Takania. Um, so that's how I've always pronounced it. But I think that's irrelevant, really. Like I think that's just um, that's just personal preference. And uh, I mean the the uh, the. I think it's one of the things to be celebrated is Aboriginal community, um, you know, rolling um, Palawakani out into culture, mm. I think is an extremely important thing for us to be able to take ownership of the extraordinary cultural history that we have on our back doorstep mm. and to integrate that into our day-to-day life, into our education systems, into our schools. And those people that, you know, might listen to this that aren't from Australia and don't have the the context like what why was it lost what happened what, what's the real story that happened well basically tasmania was um was colonized by the english mm. in 1803 we planted a flag and and it took us all of 27 years well not even that i think it took us it took us 20 years to begin like a significant war there was a there was a period of um seven years called the black war between 1823 and 1830 and basically that was a government commissioned um, line of um, um, roundup, and th- there was a war that that went on f- between that 1823 and 1830, and it eventually sort of cascaded and, and got to a point where there was a, a thing called the Black Line, and there was an attempt to round up round up Aboriginal people with civilians, soldiers, convicts, um, all coming together and sort of trying to sweep the landscape over the over the period of it. Uh, uh, several months I think and sweep them all down into the southeast corner of Tassie and they they found like one old one grandfather and a young boy I think it was a grandfather and a young boy so it was a, a r- ridiculous concept to think that white folk could potentially possibly ever outsmart Aboriginal people in their own country mm. it's just laughable how really how arrogant and then what happened was um, a bloke by the name of George Augustus Robinson put up his hand and said look for a, for a bounty I'll um I'll round the Aboriginal people up under the guise of this thing called a friendly mission. And I'm sure at the time, you know, with, within his kind of religious belief, he had some kind of sense that what he was doing was morally correct. Um, however, looking back in hindsight, it's, um, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty judgmental about his actions. So he, he used mainland trackers and, and local Aboriginal trackers, including Truganini, um, to... Um, travel around the landscape and convince Aboriginal people to move from here to Flinders Island and there's a few islands around Flinders so they inhabited a number of islands but basically over the course of four to five years the friendly mission was rolled out and there was basically you know that for branding yeah yeah, it sounds like some kind of corporate um corporate um brainwashing doesn't it Mm. And to a certain degree, what was happening was, you know, Truganini could see that, that all of the kind of colonisation coming in through the channel, because she was a, an inhabitant of Bruni Island, um, was... Uh, Truganini was a lady? Yeah, Truganini was a lady. She was the last, you know, full-blooded, debatably, but, you know, broadly recognised as the last full-blooded um, Abor- Tasmanian Aboriginal. I think she ended up dying in 1876, something like that. And so she supported she supported that as a as a movement um, 
because she recognised that she was a peace, like a diplomat, I guess, um, and she recognised that the actual war and the 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 power that the that the English had was far superior to the to the Aboriginal people, and if they didn't make some kind of treaty, that they'd potentially lose everything. Um, and so she supported that, and and basically they travelled around the state over the course of four years, four or five years, and round subsequently uh, systematically rounded up uh, Aboriginal communities, and eventually took them through to um, uh, a place called um, they 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 settled at a place called Waibalina on Flinders Island, and they spent um, like fifteen, seventeen, I think seventeen years there in total. And, and wrote letters to the Queen saying... And, and basically the promise was that you can come to um, Flinders Island, you can practice your cultural traditional ways, and you can um, come back and hunt seasonally on mainland Tasmania. And that was just a load of rubbish. They were basically forced into this kind of Christian dogma, uh, made to change their names. Um, yeah, and then at the... I think it was 1847, there were 45 full-blooded mob left, and then they eventually made their way to Oyster Cove in the southeast of Tasmania and spent the remaining days at Oyster Cove and, um, by the records, um, fell into a really nasty, understandably, a really nasty depression and lots of alcohol. And who can blame them? You know, I mean, it's it's basically... Uh, when when you consider the depth it took it took no more than 20 years like at, at least let's be really clear like the the the, the current evidence points to 43,000 years of occupation so 43,000 years of occupation is 2,000 generations and in 20 years in 20 years it's all all of that brilliance and that extraordinary wisdom. And so I find it extraordinary and I'm, I'm, I'm so you know, thrilled that Tasmanian Aboriginal culture is really emerging so beautifully back into the cultural fabric of Tasmania so that there are, there are gatherings like the Naraniara gathering on Bruni Islands and people like Trish Hodge and Craig Everett are out in in the community educating people because it provides a window of opportunity for us in our narrow kind of sense of time and cultural identity to have a window to like 2000 generations of inherent wisdom of connection with with the universe <laughs> you know when, when i when i look back at aboriginal culture i don't romanticize it because it would have been hard it would, have, it, would, it would have been many things that we wouldn't necessarily want in a contemporary lifestyle, but there's a huge amount that we would. Can you ground that in something? What, that, what do you mean by it? There's many things that we wouldn't want. Well, I think it'd be pretty difficult pulling a tooth yeah. without anaesthetic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, um, and, you know, I mean, it, it had its cultural context in the day and I'm sure it just was what it was, but, you know, I definitely prefer the anaesthetic if I had a choice. Um, but the thing that, that, that is unquestionable is the sense of like, like extraordinary credit to that culture. 
like unbelievable it's hard to even put into words how much credit they deserve in terms of like sustaining a rich sophisticated highly intelligent culture of of people um and i think we're just like we insult aboriginal people so often in our contemporary way by you know our assumptions of their primitive ways i'm like it's not primitive to sustain a culture for 2000 generations it's extremely evolved that's a high level of operating <laughs> what's primitive is to destroy an entire not an entire culture of course the fabric of aboriginal culture still remains but in terms of their original traditional culture in a, in no, no more than 30 to 40 years that's primitive that's true that's yeah that's like a that's brutal so i think we've got such a profound um, wisdom right at our fingertips and and culturally we don't really recognize that you know we tokenize we tokenize our kind of work meetings now with welcome to countries and i'm like most of the time when i hear that i'm just like god you got really no idea what you're doing you know so i think i think it's a delicate space though it's yes we um we've got a lot to learn and a lot to hear um but i think i'd rather hear um someone trying to do a welcome to country well, you can't do a welcome country but there's more to a country than not yeah. i think as we step more into that um that comfort's the wrong word but that the, i guess the healing journey together um that will become more authentic as we become more authentic because we can't We got to start we got to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I get I guess like my my frustration is you know having having acknowledged people to landscape for a long time and actually acknowledging them to landscape rather than sitting beneath fluorescent lights in office buildings then it's um it's it's just I've got a different context for it so I look on I look on it with quite a critical eye. Um, you probably but, already turning up into those places yourself feeling uncomfortable. Yeah, well I mean ultimately I I fundamentally don't like being inside. <laughs> so so I'm, it's kind of like a bit of a, a um I've definitely got my blinkers on. And just finally, how do we walk the wild back into the world? Well, I I think we we walk the wild back into the world beginning with ourselves and for me the simple version of that is that we take the vast spaciousness that is the wild and we integrate that as our internal identity so we place a huge amount of perspective so that we recognize that we're incredibly complex sophisticated creatures with many elements to ourselves and and we carry that sense of diversity of identity internally and therefore the way that we operate in the world is through a much more sophisticated emotionally intelligent lens and what we do in the world is manifested through that more sophisticated intelligent lens That conversation with Davis Walker from Tarkine Trails and Wild Walkers definitely got me right in the feels It made me think about the quote from Henry David Thoreau, in the wildness is the preservation of the world. And I think that's a pretty powerful thing to think about in this current state of the world in this climate emergency that we're facing. And in the preservation of wildness, your donation for listening to this podcast has gone directly to the preservation of the Tarkine 
and I thank you so much for that. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, podcast number zero, please do share it around. I'd really appreciate that. And thank you so much for listening. Collective. Collective.